Welcome to Stacy on the Right with your host, Stacy Washington. You're up for re-election, as you're saying, in 2018. Um, do you believe that the Democratic Party is going to win control of either House of Congress in the midterms? Um, and how do you make that assessment? So, look, I, you probably need a pundit for this one. I really, really want us to do that. I'm going to work really, really hard to help make that happen. And I run every day filled with terror that it won't. Because mm -hmm. if Donald Trump it, it remains in control of the House and the Senate and the Republicans won't stop him, I don't know what happens in the next two years. But I think the Democrats have got a really terrific chance. Oh, my goodness. Welcome to the show. Hey, happy Friday to you. It's actual Friday, not Friday Eve like yesterday. And we have a jam-packed show for you. Welcome to the program. I'm Stacey Washington, host of Stacey on the Right here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Go to urbanfamilytalk.com to find the podcasts and articles and polls. And you can sign up for our conference, which is this August 17th and 18th, where we'll have a fantastic bevy of speakers that will encourage you in... Uh, working with your family, growing your family, growing your faith, and following God's word and what he has for us, the blessings that he has for us in being obedient um, in having successful families and successful marriages. So I'll be speaking at that conference as well as Will and Miki Addison, who are hosts of Airing the Addisons, Lonnie Poindexter, Passive Joseph, Pastor Joseph Parker, and of course, Abraham Hamilton III. So you'll have an opportunity to uh, interact with us, and, and it'll, it'll be a really wonderful time. So register for that conference at urbanfamilytalk.com. And I want to give you a rundown. Who's on the show today? Well, we're going to be speaking with Remso Martinez. He's going to come on and talk about his book, Stay Away from the Libertarians. Now, you guys know I have a couple problems with the libertarian philosophy of governance. Uh, not all of it. I mean, some of it is actually really pro-limited government, pro-constitution, and some of it sounds a lot like anarchy. So he'll be explaining uh, his philosophy about libertarianism to us in the first hour. And in the second hour, we have David Almasi, the president of National Center. National Center is the parent organization for Project 21. I'm on the advisory council as a co-chair. And so David's going to come on today and talk to us about a little dust up between himself and a CEO of a major corporation uh, in the work that they do uh, at National Center for the Free Enterprise Project, which is exciting and fun and pro-liberty. And so we'll be talking to him about that. What you just heard was Elizabeth Warren, and she says she's filled with terror about the midterm elections because you just can't turn out voters uh, to get them to reauthorize and re recommit themselves to failed policies. Uh, if you don't make them think it's life or death, the end of the Republic, the end of life as they know it, the cattle cars are just around the bend. You have to really, really convince people that their lives are in danger because otherwise they'll be too busy enjoying the extra money that's in their paychecks from the tax reform, the extra bonuses from the lower business tax rate, the almost full employment. Uh, the, uh, there's, a, there's a sense of excitement about the economy. Confidence in the economy is at record highs. Unemployment is at record lows, 44-year lows. And whatever people think about President Trump, they have to attribute these changes, the fewer regulations, even savings in government. We're actually seeing government spending on the whole trending downward, not as much as we'd like, but any change to less is something to be applauded. And all of those things ha are happening under President Donald Trump. And, and the, we were told, especially blacks, women, uh, Jews, 
people who are involved in same-sex attraction all were told that we would be uh, shipped off out of the country or sent to concentration camps. Not happening. So uh, we're, we're, I found that clip to be a little comical, especially on a Friday. Now, this is a heavy news day. Yesterday, the Department of Justice issued their inspector general report. Mr. Horowitz did not go as far as I would have liked him to, but maybe because he felt the facts spoke for themselves. A number of text messages between Peter Strzok and Lisa Page have come to the fore and have really, really, really made it clear to us that there are no uh, nonpartisans in the FBI, as much as we would love to think that there are. And I, I want to make the distinction in this particular instance, when I say the FBI, I, I should be more specific. I'm talking about the leadership uh, that's in Washington, D.C., and the people who are working on the Mueller investigation into Russian collusion on the part of the Trump campaign and those who were working on the Hillary Clinton email investigation. And the reason I say that is because there are 37,000 employees of the FBI, I believe, was shared on, on one of the news organizations. So uh, there are very well, there have to be many FBI employees who are either kind of apolitical because they really are about the job. And there have to be a lot of them that are Republicans or conservatives or what have you. But Mark Levin made a point on Fox News that I thought was so stunning. And I, I believe, you know, facts that you know under the radar, you know them, you realize them, but you don't, you don't grasp them. You don't kind of take charge of those facts. And sometimes it takes someone else who's very astute and analytical to point those things out. And when I was listening to Mark Levin talking about this salient point, it was just like light bulbs and little fireworks and all kinds of things were just popping off. Because it makes so much sense once you listen to the point that he's making, all of the other pieces then begin to have a lot more clarity. And the other pieces that I'm talking about are the fact that no one seemed to think it was a big deal that they were texting on government devices about how they wanted Donald Trump to lose the election and how they were going to fix it so that he would. None of them seemed to think it was odd that they were having these relationships on the job and that part and parcel to the relationships were these it was as if they were on some kind of a mission. You guys might remember the funny times we've had over the course of the past few months talking about Peter Strzok and Lisa Page and they're in the black Escalade and they're like Jason Bourne and Mrs. Jason Bourne. And they're, you know, rolling around the country and coming to abrupt stops and, you know, tumbling out of the, the vehicle with their FBI vests on. And they're like, you know, clearing corners and stuff with their high capacity P90Xs or whatever. And they're doing all of that and the music is playing in the background in their heads and they're saving the Republic. They're rescuing America. And that's what they thought they were doing, rescuing America from Donald Trump. Never mind the fact that, you know, well over 60 million people voted for Donald Trump and that the country is increasingly divided just down the middle, depending on the issue. There are some issues where there's well over 60% of Americans believe one thing as opposed to the other side. But Generally speaking, this election kind of boiled down to who was willing to work harder and Donald Trump worked harder in the states that mattered for the Electoral College. And that's how the decision is decided. So anyway, Mark Levin's on um, he's on TV with Sean Hannity. He's talking about how he's got it printed out there in front of him uh, in the interview. And it's this big, thick ream of papers, the entire report. And he says, you know, he's he's had time to look through it and really digest it. And what he notices about the text messages is that they're all on one side. It's number five. Tell you what I see as I went through this major report here. I see several things. Number one, 
out of all the texts, all the documents, all the emails that have been reviewed. You know what's interesting, Sean? There's not a single pro-Trump text. There's not a single anti-Hillary text. There's not a single pro-Trump senior FBI official. There's not a single anti-Hillary FBI official. This was a cabal. And these people had as their purpose to interfere with a presidential election. They interfered with this presidential election worse than the Russians could have ever dreamed of. And I am no fan of Vladimir Putin and the Russians, let me tell you that. James Comey's FBI, there was collusion. The media in this report, appalling, giving gifts and tickets to sporting events and golf outings in exchange apparently for leaks. You have a culture of leaks at the FBI. The buck stops with Comey. This is Comey. Comey, disgraced. McCabe, criminal referrals. Have you ever heard of an FBI like this? You have obstruction. Jim Comey spent months trying to make sure that Hillary Clinton was protected. You know why? Because if they had impaneled a federal grand jury and played by the book, she would have been indicted. And the Democrat Party would have had to have another convention and find another candidate. They couldn't allow that. They had to defeat Trump. So there's a lot to digest there. But the most important thing is what he said first, which is if there if there were text messages present, let's just play what if for five seconds here. Let's say the IG report showed text messages of people who were equally as interested in electing Donald Trump, who were willing to subvert uh, the Russian investigation in order to uh, or not to elect him because the Russia investigation was that came about after he was already inaugurated. Let's say that they found text messages that showed that people who were working on the investigation were actively working to exonerate Donald Trump, regardless of the information that they, they, they were getting in the investigation. That would be a stunning revelation that CNN and MSNBC would pick up and they would run with it 24 hours a day. They would replay it. They would, they would make visuals. They would find people that they could interview who have experience in the FBI, but are retired. They would talk about, how it's a it's a blow to the Constitution, a blow to democracy, that career appointees showing that kind of partisanship is a breakdown in the fabric of America's, you know, uh, very essence of America, that the government was broken down, that the public's trust was not just ab- abused, but obliterated. Can you imagine the kinds of panels they would have on that kind of information? But that's not what they found. In their review of millions of electronic communications between a number of individuals, they actually located five additional FBI agents who were also materially involved in trying to subvert and lessen the impact of the email investigation into Hillary Clinton's private server and direct more energy towards the Russia collusion investigation. Even one of the texts for one of the unnamed agents says, I'm afraid I'm not finding anything. This looks like a big nothing burger, but we have to go on. In other words, this is where we're putting all of our energy because this is all that we care about is making sure that this man can't continue to govern. They were so convinced that Hillary was going to win that they they really were hinging everything on that. So when the loss occurred, you, there's just so many images. If you haven't been on Twitter, uh, you don't have to be an actual Twitter user to go on and peruse tweets. Just go on and t- uh, type in text or search the word FBI agent text or Peter Strzok text, 
and you'll see screen grabs from the actual DOJ IG report where they, after they read the text messages, of course, they printed them out and they interviewed the agents who'd sent the messages and they asked them, what is, what, what were you thinking? First of all, sending these kinds of very partisan, very, they're damaging to the uh, reputation of the FBI and to your work. They call your work into question. And they admitted, we didn't think the FBI was archiving text messages. We just didn't think these would ever be viewed by anyone else. The other thing is they worked in close proximity with other agents and they didn't have the space to have these kinds of like, you know, you're at work and you stand up and you go over the cubicle and you're like, but did you hear or can you believe that type of thing? They couldn't do it because they were working in such tight quarters. Uh, There were other times where they had a little bit of space, but if they wanted to have a private phone call, it was just impossible to do so because they did not have private offices. So they used the text messages as a way to communicate and to kind of, you know, rub each other's shoulders, if you will, or the metaphorical, you know, side hug for someone who's really discouraged after their candidate lost. But where it gets a little hazy is when they say things like Peter Strzok said, I'm so Lisa Page says, I thought you told me this couldn't happen. In other words, you told me Donald Trump couldn't be elected. And then he says, I know I feel so responsible. I can't believe that this is what's happened. Remember, Lisa Page was an attorney working for the FBI where Peter Strzok was an actual agent. And so it's as if he's taking responsibility for somehow not orchestrating the email investigation in such a way that it would lead to the result that they were looking for. And this is all I'm, I'm telling you, this is all within the context of the Federal Bureau of Investigations. Their job is to prosecute criminals. They investigate and prosecute. They they bring these findings of their investigations to the Department of Justice, who then you know, they, they go forward and file charges and indict, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, can it be any worse? I, the only thing they didn't do, we don't find evidence of anybody physically harming anyone or plotting to, you know, harm anyone physically. And, but, but everything else, yeah, they're pretty guilty of it. So it's interesting to see that the DOJ IG report doesn't come back with like this hammer designation of, they were guilty, they, they were biased, but every bit of information inside the report points to bias and to activities that were based on assumptions that when they didn't come true, activated these people to begin to actually work against the sitting president of the United States. Someone's got to be punished. This can't be the end. Now, there are two more IG reports coming. They're not finished. But Wow. So we have more on that. But up next, we have Remzo Martinez. He's going to join us to talk about his new book. Stay there. Hi, I'm Will Addison. And I'm Miki Addison of Aaron the Addisons on Urban Family Talk. Family is so important to everything. I mean, think about it. Right after God created Adam, he made family by creating Eve as his wife. We'd like to invite you to the Marriage, Family, and Life Conference this summer. We'll have a full slate of experts to help encourage and equip the body of Christ to fight for the restoration of the family. 
Our speakers include Ryan Bomberger of the Radiance Foundation, Dr. Clarence Schuler of Building Lasting Relationships, Abraham Hamilton III, Pastor Burt Harper and his wife Jan, and more. We'll even be there. The Marriage, Family, and Life Conference will be Friday and Saturday, August 17th and 18th at Hope Church in Tupelo, Mississippi. Come help us fight back against the enemy's direct attack on marriage and family. That's the Marriage, Family, and Life Conference put on by Urban Family Communications, a division of the American Family Association. You can learn more and register at urbanfamilytalk.com. Hi, I'm Crawford Loritz with a Legacy Moment. Leonard Scott is a trusted friend and colleague. For years, he served as my executive assistant. His loyalty and commitment to me and what God has called us to do is humbling. If you would look up servant in the dictionary, you would find a picture of the guy we affectionately call Scotty there. That's Leonard Scott. Many times he went beyond the call of duty to make sure I had what I needed or to relieve me of some of the pressures associated with my ministry. I am humbled and I appreciate and honor the sacrifice and commitment of this servant of the Lord. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, there's an account of some guys, kind of like loyal staff members, who made a great sacrifice for David. Verse 15 says, And David had a craving and said, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water from the well of Bethlehem, which was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Notice, they took the initiative in fulfilling a desire. Secondly, their active service became an opportunity for worship. Then number three, he valued and understood the price of their service. Well, here's what I want you to remember today. Don't take for granted those who sacrifice in order to meet your needs and to minister to you. Why don't you do something special to honor them? Legacy Moment is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Global Ministries. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for being with us today at Stacey on the Right on Twitter and Instagram. And StaceyOnTheRight.com is where you can subscribe to my blog and get the once a week newsletter with all the cool stuff in it. It's my pleasure to welcome Remzo Martinez, journalist, political commentator, and author of Stay Away from the Libertarians. Remzo, thanks for joining in today. Stacey, thank you so much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Fantastic. So let's talk about this book, Stay Away from the Libertarians. Um, it's your blurb says, why do people hate libertarians? One part of America calls them soulless robber barons who want to stick children back in factories and other part thinks they're drugged up anarchists. Who are they? Yeah, I kind of get straight to the point there, don't I? It's, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's, a, it's a stereotype that, you know, is split in so many different directions. I mean, libertarianism in America right now is uh, such a schizophrenic ideology. And I could go on for probably hours describing the different things that people have told me they thought libertarians were. But, you know, the, the answer was always this. Libertarians are your neighbors. They're your friends. They're your family. They're your coworkers. They're just everyday people, except they have this radical notion that you 
shouldn't hurt people, you shouldn't take their stuff, and you shouldn't use government as a violent middleman. So while I knew this answer, I knew many other people knew this answer, there's never necessarily been you know, a, a common defense of not necessarily the ideas of libertarianism, but an understanding of who libertarians are and why they come to the conclusions they do. And that's what I tried to achieve through my book. Okay, so what would be the difference, the main difference, if you had to explain to someone and you don't, you know, like your kind of elevator pitch for the main difference between libertarianism and conservatism? Well, I I really do think it comes down to this. Uh, Personally, I am very socially conservative in my life, but, you know, I take more of a radical approach to the idea of private contracts and private association. Um, You know, when... We look back at the last couple of years. I mean, gay marriage is no longer a big topic, but I wasn't necessarily pro-gay marriage. I wasn't against it. In fact, I took the concept a little bit farther than most would. I said, why is government in the marriage business? Because if we really want to focus on you know, preserving our churches, preserving our religious liberty, the last thing we want is to ever get the government involved in that. Let your church decide who can get married. When you go ahead and you uh, become part of a congregation or another religion, you're entering that upon voluntary association. And I think when it comes to conservatives, we're so, you know, and I do consider myself as part of the conservative movement because I think a lot of libertarians have a lot to contribute to that. It seems that, you know, conservatives, they want to legislate a lot of things. And it's like, well, what you're doing is you're trying to you know, prevent something from happening. But whenever you get government involved, when you get the bureaucrats and the regulators and the politicians involved, Good intentions go sour very fast, and I think libertarians are a lot more hesitant to use government to try and influence our society and our culture than most conservatives are. Sure. So uh, I've had uh, quite a few really stimulating conversations with people who are libertarians. They're usually on the younger side. Um, The ones who are older are much more likely to be um, conscientious objectors, that type of thing. Um, but what I found with younger conservatives is that they actually are really liberal socially, but they're conservative fiscally and they believe the government is too large and they want to be left alone. And so it makes them kind of an, it's, it's like they don't really slot in with conservatives, but they definitely aren't liberals. They're, they're more like classical liberals in some ways, but in other ways, it's just a really different belief system. But one of the things I've noticed about some libertarians that I've met here locally in Missouri is that they tend not to believe in sovereignty as it pertains to maintaining a border, um, using E-Verify, things like that that are really detrimental to uh, the livelihood of people who are already here, who are citizens and who, who are taxpaying Americans who deserve to be protected by our federal government in the enumerated powers, one of which is that the government is supposed to maintain our defense and secure Americans' liberty by not having foreign, foreigners as invaders. Where do you come down on that? You bring up a lot of good points. I'm going to try my best to cover each of them. But the first thing you brought up is uh, something I, I, I totally understand. It's this notion that uh, a lot of younger millennial conservatives are more socially liberal. I would disagree with that statement only because when we look at modern-day liberals, when they go ahead and they put out their progressive ideas, they are forcing you to bake the cake. They're forcing you to love people you might not love. They're forcing you to adopt something. I think when it comes to libertarians, I mean, I agree with you. We do take a lot more of a classical liberal approach. It's not that I necessarily want you to accept something. It's that I really don't want to have to have the government take an opinion on that. Uh, When we go ahead and look at the situation of borders, and this is something I cover towards the latter end of my book, uh, it's a split issue. 
there are many libertarians who believe in a, you know, a free and unfettered right to movement. And that sounds great on the white paper. And I do kind of give out that argument there, and then I go ahead and refute it, because there are folks like me that believe, you know, how can you protect the individual, the individual liberty of a country and individual liberty throughout all of the citizens if you don't protect your border? And I'm one of the libertarians that says, you know what, you can't have uh, you know, a society that protects freedom if you're not protecting the right to you know, have people defend their property. Because if we don't know who's coming in, then that's a giant threat. And when we go ahead and look at what the, you know, when we distill down the role of government, what is that? It's to protect the people. And I believe a border is part of that. Uh, well, if you verify, and I've, you know, coming from a border state, I grew up in a town called Sierra Vista, Arizona. You could spit off my front porch and hit Mexico. The problem with E-Verify was that it was done in a way which caused a lot of problems. And in a sense, what it did was it really forced a lot of businesses to comply with um, you know, law enforcement. It essentially militarized businesses. And the thing is, if a private business wants to hire somebody that's a day laborer, and they're already here, as long as they're making sure that they're you know, up with their visa and they're following the laws and they get a permit, that's not the problem. The problem is that, you know, what you had was you had things like SB 1070 come out, came, come out back in about 2011, 2010. And that caused a lot more issues because what we did was we tried to create all these laws to enforce immigration, but nobody understood what was going on and people were enforcing some things and not enforcing others. The biggest problem that I think a lot of conservatives don't understand is that uh, what's the big source of, of people wanting to come here? You have a giant welfare state. And the problem with a lot of open borders libertarians, they all understand that, you know, people work off incentives. If I know I can come here and I could bring my wife and children and she could bring her family and I'll go ahead and grab a few other people along the way, then we can go ahead and go to hospitals, which the taxpayers have to go, we'll have to pay for, and then we have to go on the dole and everything else. The welfare state, in the way that the Democrats have really tried to establish it, incentivizes um, illegal activity. And that's, you know, it, it just comes down to this. It's a split issue. You either believe in, you know, the unfettered free movement of people or you believe that in order to protect society, you have to protect the borders. And, you know, I'm on the other end of that. You can't have a country if you don't defend your borders. And there are others that side on the other thing. So it's, a, it's an issue that, you know, libertarians have never come to a conclusion on. And that's, you know, only one of the many things they don't agree on. I'm a pro-life libertarian. I believe that you don't, you know, you don't have liberty itself if you're not even allowed to live. And then you have others that say, well, shouldn't a woman own her body? I would argue, doesn't that child inside the woman have the right to live? Well, they own their own body. What we do is we body. create two separate <laughs> classes of people. Yeah, the baby actually owns their own body. <laughs> Once they become even that little tiny, what people on the left call clump of cells, that little clump of cells owns its own body. It may be inside of the mom, but that's a temporary condition that once rectified, you wouldn't say you can kill that infant because the mom finds the infant too convenient. No, there are other ways of, of handling that situation. And I think it's it's really illogical the way we look at unborn children as uh, basically property of the mothers who are carrying them, not really owning them. Um, I agree with you on that. But I'm, I wonder... so. I honestly, after speaking with, I, I probably, I feel like maybe I've spoken with a hundred libertarians individually over the course of the time that I've gone to conferences. And every time I, I meet a libertarian, I hear something from them that I find thought, uh, thoughtfully stimulating and 
there's a lot of information that libertarians really study up on and and bring with them to conversations that I think is valuable to policy discussions. I actually think the best situation we can have is one where libertarians are contributing to our policy ideas because I'm I'm not a libertarian, but I know there are ways of turning a problem around that conservatives we we don't naturally bend in that direction and libertarians often do. There's a lot of crea- creativity there. And so I, I would love to see more interaction between libertarians and conservatives on how to solve problems, um, especially the ones that are kind of intractable, that we could possibly be together on those and beat back the the Democrats who are it, it feels as if the Democratic Party is really in the business of tearing down any chance to solve a problem like the problem we're having with school shootings, the problem with our border, the problem with us aborting nine hundred and fifty thousand babies a year. And what that does to our population rate and what that does to the women who have the abortions. And so there are a number of issues where Democrats don't have anything to add, but libertarians definitely do. If you're you're talking to the, the radio audience here and, and everyone's listening and, and hearing you for the first time, what would you say to them about libertarianism? Like if you had one thing that you wanted to share or the most important thing about libertarianism that you want to debunk something that might be untrue or the truth about it? I, I think... You know, speaking like a Reader's Digest type of moment, let's go ahead and just focus on what is the worldview of libertarians, and it's this. When we look at the government, when we look at the state, what is it at the end of the day? Bare knuckles. It is a system of force, violence, and coercion. And if you aren't willing to go hold your neighbor up at gunpoint, go ahead and get something done, whether to pave a road or to pay for somebody else's benefits or something else, if you're not willing to go out there and do it yourself, why would you have the government, which is at the end of the day a violent middleman, go out and do that? If we want a peaceful, prosperous, and respectable society, we have to stop seeing government as this all-being, all-seeing, all-controlling entity that it is. And we need to start seeing our society as, you know, it's our neighbor, it's our friend, it's our family. If you can't get something done yourself, there are other people that can do that. But, you know, you look back at our, uh, at our founding, you know, our founding fathers, what they always emphasize. They emphasize civil society, your churches, your congregations, your social institutions, the family. Government was always the last thing you had to go to. Why is it so hard? Why is it so radical to think that we could solve problems without force? And I think if you believe in that, you're halfway there to, you know, potentially having more of a libertarian mindset. Okay, so Remzo, let's let's get to the the nitty gritty here, which I learned after becoming active in politics and kind of you know get just you know you get your toe wet. And one of the first things you learn as a Republican is that as much as we talk about limited government, as much as conservatives talk about how they want to be left alone and be individuals, when you start talking about eliminating the library tax or uh, a certain tax on gasoline that's supposed to pay for roads, really any tax you can think of. If you talk about raising the the age to retire, uh, you know, gradually lifting that up to reflect longer, uh, you know, lifespan for Americans, you immediately get pushback from Republicans. Like Republicans are the main ones who will say, well, we can't do that because that of this, because of that. You know, if we take away that tax on libraries, then people have to pay a fee to go to the library and that will reduce um uh, you know, literacy or what have you. I mean, I've heard some of the most amazing arguments. We can't reduce the tax that we levy on parks here locally in Missouri because the park system needs to be maintained and we need to make sure it's still free. If you put a fee on the parks, then people won't go to them. 
and the parks are one of the most beautiful benefits of living in Missouri, et cetera, et cetera. It just goes on and on and on. The same people who are screaming about their taxes and wanting government to be limited never want to see any cuts to the programs they like. Where do you come down on that, or how do we how do we convince them otherwise on that? Everyone, and I'm not saying this to sound rude whatsoever, but everyone has their sacred cow. <laughs> they all have their sacred cow entitlement. You know, I uh, I kind of got my start in the blogosphere as an education reform blogger. And you would not believe the hatred I got from Republicans going after Common Core, going after Head Start, going and advocating for charter schools, more school choice, the Tim Tebow Act. The hatred I got for the Tim Tebow Act was mind-boggling. But you go ahead and you look around and you see what people are able to accomplish themselves. A lot of people look at libertarians and they're like, well, without government intervention, who would build the roads? Last I checked, Domino's is doing a pretty good job at filling the potholes that most community governments aren't willing to spend the time to go fix, despite the fact that they're going to take your tax money anyway, and then they may or may not go out and fix it. If we, have the gov- if we allow the government to outlaw parents teaching their children how to walk, and in order to learn how to walk, you had to go to public school, you would have a whole generation of people that did not know how to walk properly, but even if they weren't to go to public school, they wouldn't know what the concept of walking is at all. The thing is that government doesn't work like any other institution. It doesn't work off of profit. It doesn't work off incentive. They don't have to be nice to you. I've never met a single progressive. I've never met a single conservative that said, I don't imagine a world without the DMV or the IRS. <laughs> and when we, uh, you know, when we play power politics, and you see this whenever there's a government shutdown or anything, it's always, you have to do this or else we're going to shut it down. You have to do this or else people will die. It's always you have to go with one absolute extreme or another. As a policy person, whenever I worked with people across the aisle on something, whether it was with an organization or when I was working near the Hill, it always came down to this. We can incrementally change something and allow people to see the effects, and once we get there, we can go ahead and you know move the needle, whichever way it goes. We have to be willing to change things. We have to be willing to reform things, because regardless of who's in power, you know, Donald Trump, and I think he's done a phenomenal job as president, one day John, Donald Trump won't be in the White House, and we might have a Bernie Sanders. We might have somebody else. Yeah. If we want to start making the changes, we have to start doing it in our own neighborhoods, in our own communities, and we have to stop pretending that one person is going to fix all our problems all the time. Or better yet, one party is always going to be consistent. Because mm-hmm. I think Republicans, I know conservatives will agree with me on this, Republicans fail sometimes. Absolutely. They really screw the pooch. Oh, well, it's not, it's, it's humans. Anytime they're involved, you're going to have some failure and some disappointment. Remzo Martinez, author of Stay Away from the Libertarians. Thank you so much for joining the show. Really insightful. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Stacey. Take care. All right. Talk to you again soon. We are slamming and jamming. We'll be back with more right after this.
dear sister in the Lord, who is a writer for the AFA Journal, wrote an astonishing article about idols. In this article, she attests to the fact that if we are truly honest with ourselves, we will find things or people whom are more important in our lives than our relationship with God. Let's just say when I read this, I did my own soul searching and found a few. There are several passages in God's word where he tells us to not idolize things or people. Even the very first two commandments warns us about idolatry. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, John tells us to keep ourselves from idols. Idolatry is sin, and it could be your career, your marriage, your car, including yourself. John Piper says it best, sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. How do you get satisfied and excited about God? Refresh your memory of what the Savior of the world did on the cross and ask the Lord to help you make Him number one in your life. With a heart for the Urban Family, I'm today's Urban Woman, Victory McIntosh. Connect with us more at UrbanFamilyTalk.com. Coming next week on The Dwelling Place. Pastor Al Pittman continues to walk us through the Bible line by line and verse by verse to let God show us just how timeless His truth is. That's next week on The Dwelling Place. Please call your senators today. It's time to put an end to the liberals' filibuster. Tell your senators to switch to a majority vote and defund Planned Parenthood now. Call the Capitol switchboard at 202-224-3121 or go to afaaction.net. Again, call 202-224-3121 and tell your senators to switch to a majority vote and defund Planned Parenthood. Your call will make a difference. Back to Genesis with Dr. John Morris, geologist and president of the Institute for Creation Research. Dr. Morris, what's the source of natural gas? Chris, natural gas is a result of a variety of life processes. Even the digestion of your food produces methane gas. Methane gas is also found in volcanic eruptions and in meteorites. So it's evidently a chemical that can form under a variety of conditions. A new theory has been proposed that the huge deposits of methane gas are really the inorganic outgassing of the Earth's interior. These huge pockets of pure methane in many ways don't appear to be life gases with all the impurities that would be there. I lean to such a theory myself. God created this earth for man's good and methane is a very good part of our existence. It's hard to know for sure, but it wouldn't surprise me from a Back to Genesis perspective. To learn more about creation, get our free DVD called That's a Fact. Call us at 800-628-7640 and mention the promo code FACT. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right. Put it this way. Comey's assumptions were all based on the fact that Hillary Clinton was going to win the presidential election, right? And right. I mean, that's, that's clear in the report that they all agree that's what they thought. That, that's what was going to happen. They knew it was so, and they proceeded. They didn't act like law enforcement people. They acted like people who were caught in this political swirl, and as we see, playing games and sending emails. So the first and most important thing I take away from this is James Comey's ruined, right? This is the, this is the, the, the full ruination of James Comey. We see now why uh, he wanted to get his book out. We see why he did the aggressive publicity tour. This is just, this is horrible for him. And here's Robert Mueller, uh, not a spring chicken, who had basically now, in a sense, had to come out of retirement to save this agent, not to, I don't want to make it sound too strong, but to undo a lot of the damage that his successor did. 
Okay, so that was Chris Steyerwalt. He was uh, on Fox News, and he, I just, I couldn't believe he said that, that Comey is completely ruined. And the reason why I couldn't believe he said it is because I'd actually thought that late last night, uh, just, just before I turned in for the evening, I was, I was thinking about this whole thing, this whole, you know, the IG report, everything that we've learned. And I, I thought back over the course of the last year, you know, Many times here on the show, we've talked about James Comey. We've played audio clips of him, especially during his never-ending book tour where he was just on every show. I mean, his PR budget must have been so outstanding for him to make the, some of those, those hits he was able to get, those full-form, long-length interviews that he was able to get. It was just, I mean, somebody somebody put out a pretty penny, which was probably his publisher, uh, but it was an amazing feat of publicity for him uh for for the book and uh he he as he, if you guys remember we were covering on the show that he he just kept getting further and further away from the truth and he was saying things that we could actually verify that's not exactly true like there were youtube videos of him saying one thing and then on the book tour he's like uh i'm not exactly sure i remembered feeling like that at the time i'm not exactly sure i recall that being what i thought perhaps what i thought was which is interesting because he was talking about his own mind. Like you'd think he'd be able to remember when I was handling the Hillary Clinton investigation and I made this statement or I told the American people this or that. Uh, well, what I was thinking was exactly what I said. That's what I thought at the time. But he, he was revising his history on the investigation and everything he did for the FBI as director in real time in front of us. And we were watching. And so the incredulity that we felt then is now compounded by learning the, the, the contents of the IG report. And he's, he's actually, it makes sense because I thought at the time, you know, it's interesting. It seems as if he's almost running against the clock with this book. And he didn't know when the IG report was going to come out because he was no longer in government. He was the former FBI director. So it's not like he could just pick up his desk phone and call over to the Department of Justice and say, you know, what's the expected time frame on the IG report? He wanted to get the book out as quickly as possible, get the publicity tour done, do and go as deep into the American psyche as he could with it, get as many books sold as he possibly could, because he knew once the IG report came out, the contradictions would be very obvious for us to see. And it literally been out for 24 hours, and we now know that um, his statement that he's not sure if he remembered, I don't I don't actually know if I recall whether or not I knew that Huma Abedin and Anthony Weiner were married to each other. That's a statement that we all, how can you possibly believe that when Huma Abedin was the closest confidant and advisor and longest working employee, continuous employee of Hillary Clinton and her husband, Anthony Weiner, not only had the sex scandal beforehand, like, after he was, he was, uh, um, he was in the house. He was an elected member of the house, and then he left. And then he ran for mayor of New York. And he was trying to rehabilitate his image when all of the Carlos Danger direct messages came out. So this is not someone who was famous in a locality, like someone who's done something here locally in St. Louis. But most people across the country don't know who they are. They've never heard the story. It may have been national news, but it wasn't national news like, you know, consistently running over the course of days. Because in order to reach 
multiple tens of millions of Americans, a news story can't just be the top of the news on one day because most Americans don't consume news all day, every day. So you have to, it has to be in the news for more than one day. It has to have legs, as they say. So the idea that the Wiener story didn't have legs and that it wasn't everywhere, online, Twitter especially, he was a trending topic on Twitter on more than one occasion for days on end. And the fact that Huma Abedin, who the chief problem that most of us had with her before we realized who she was married to because he was involved in scandal, was that she had been accused of having ties through her family to the Muslim Brotherhood. And she worked closely with a sitting senator. And then, you know, obviously Hillary Clinton headed up the State Department. So it was those things that we focused on with Huma Abedin. But it turns out her husband was the real thorn in their side. And Hillary Clinton could have nipped all of that in the bud by simply firing Huma Abedin as soon as any of this stuff appeared. As soon as it appeared, she could have said, I have to let you go. And that is when she would have been separated from the fact that Huma Abedin took home thousands, tens of thousands of emails and copied them from her work laptop to the private laptop that Anthony Weiner used to send the direct messages to the underage girl. Then she would have had clear demarcation. She would have said, I knew there were problems here. That's why I fired her. So, you know, obviously she needs to be prosecuted. But maybe she couldn't do that because Huma Abedin knows where the dead bodies are located. I mean, you know, and I don't mean literal dead bodies. I'm talking about you know, the problems with the email server and all of that. When you've worked that closely with someone, you know what their their weaknesses are and where they don't have good cover for for different things that they might have done that are outside of what they're allowed to do. And and so all of that plays into this. It's just a really like, yes, it all makes sense in, in a lot of ways, but it's still wrong. There's still so much wrongdoing here that we're looking at. So I want to listen to Andy McCarthy, who comes on, he's, he's uh, on television talking about why the IG didn't find political bias. And, and this is fascinating in and of itself, too. There's a lot to this that really, it would be so riveting to watch as a movie or recurring television program that was fiction, but it's not. It's actual, this is like the real deal, what's happened. And we as the American people have paid for all of this and people are getting away with, or at least it looks like right now, they're getting away with breaking the law. Um, so it's number six. All right, Andy, the overall conclusion though of the inspector general is that if there was political bias, they didn't see evidence it factored into any of the decisions made on the investigation. Does that settle it for you? No, it really doesn't because think about how carefully they're wording this, Shannon. I, I really don't like it when they say there's no evidence because that that means there's like no suggestion in the record that bias could have been a factor. And what they're saying here, and it's very carefully done, is that what the IG was evaluating were a series of judgment calls and they were not going to second guess people's discretionary judgment because um, their their metric was was the decision made irrational. Uh, not whether they agreed with it or whether it was the only decision that could have been made under the circumstances. If that's where you're coming from, and you're also saying at the same time, there's pervasive evidence that they had bias, they can't rule out the fact that bias may have played in and may have actually have been decisive. So what they're actually saying is, we don't have evidence here from which we can conclude for a certainty that bias 
was what the driving factor was here, but they can't discount it. And for them to continue to say there's no evidence that bias played a role here is just preposterous. That's not what the report says. Hmm. So you got that going on. You got so I mean, if you listen to the breadth of the coverage about the report, there are some some high points that keep being hit. And, you know, with good reason. Look, it sounds as if the IG report is saying there's no bias. But it, when you read it like the, so in the summary, it says they didn't find that the political bias that that the individuals may have demonstrated in their text messages actually impacted the results of any investigations, namely the email investigation into Hillary Clinton's server. But that's not actually exactly what the the report shows. In the report, you see where they're really anxious to get off of Hillary Clinton's email investigation and into the Russia collusion investigation. They're they're not just anxious. They feel like it's a way for them to fix something that they messed up, which was the election. They almost take responsibility for it as if that the determinant in all of our elections as a country, when we have, when we elect a president, that the FBI is integral to making sure that we either get the candidate elected that should be elected or that they, when they fail, we don't. Isn't that a new concept for you? I, I, for me, it is. I, I was listening, you know, you read what they wrote, you read the text messages and you think to yourself, this is so foreign because I, I've never considered the FBI to be that integral to our elections, but in their minds, it was because the investigation was going on. So I've seen some people already. Uh, Joe Scarborough, I was tweeting about that this morning. He says, you know, now it's, now it's for sure James Comey is to blame for Hillary Clinton losing the election. And I have to really, like Hillary Clinton sent out a, ta- uh, uh, a tweet this morning or yesterday evening saying, uh, but my email, just three words, but my email. In other words, James Comey, was using a Gmail account or something for some of his emails. And she's saying basically, but he was so obsessed with my email. It's a, it's a different thing. There's a huge distinction between sending a few emails from work or having to do with work on Gmail. That's a violation, but that is orders of magnitude, not as bad as you having a homebrew server that you haven't even secured yourself and changing email classifications you know, she stripped classifications off of faxes and emails. She did those things. James Comey did not. So, I mean, he's hardly my favorite person, but those are not the same thing. There is a distinction. The Federal Records Act was violated by Hillary Clinton numerous times. The fact that she even has the audacity to try to make the comparison as if she's so aggrieved, she doesn't even believe she lost the election and it's her fault. She knows she lost, but she doesn't think it's her fault. And so whenever Joe Scarborough or some other rhino conservative, Republican, liberal, uh, communist, Bernie Sanders supporter, whatever they might be, comes on television or tweets out some kind of, well, now we know it was Comey's fault. Well, now we know it was the Russians' fault. Well, now we know it was white women's fault. It was young millennial women who didn't vote. It was blacks who didn't turn out. It was, you know, you can go on down the line. She's got somebody she wants to try to tar and feather with her loss. And a lot of her supporters feel the same way. But the fact is, Hillary Clinton didn't lose only because James Comey said that they'd reopen the investigation. It wasn't the Russian ads that were run on Facebook, which it turns out they ran quite a few, but they didn't spend that much on it. 
She lost because she was a horrible candidate. She lost because back when she had the opportunity as Secretary of State to simply say, what is, Huma, what is my email address as Secretary of State? Okay. And then wall off the other email addresses and run all of her, her email communications through that and all of her private emails about her daughter's wedding or any kind of email she might have been sending to Bill about their private interests. She could have had those on a Gmail account or an AOL account. I mean, you guys know how many options there are for, for email. She could have done that. And had she done that, there wouldn't have been an email investigation and the FBI wouldn't have been involved and she could have just run a clean campaign. Then Donald Trump couldn't have called her Crooked Hillary. Do you see how that works? She brought this on herself. And so this idea that people keep on, they're just beating it like a dead horse that's been laying out in the sun for a long time and it stinks. She cannot exonerate herself from the loss of the presidency. She cannot. She may want to place the blame at the feet of others, but at the end of the day, one decision would have made her immune to probably I'd say a third to 50% of the criticism that was leveled at her by Donald Trump. He would have had to have attacked her on something else. She gave him the ammunition because she chose incorrectly back when she was the secretary of state. Now, the good news for her is that she'll never be prosecuted because then that would open the door to prosecuting President Obama and he is the Democrat sacred cow and they'll never permit that to happen. But in the course of her actions and the ramifications of those actions, she has also opened up others to the kind of scrutiny that they didn't want. WikiLeaks showed us a lot about the Democrats. The Democrats nominating... Uh, so millennials wouldn't have had such a huge problem with her if she didn't have the email server issue. If she wasn't such a damaged candidate coming into the race, they wouldn't have been so energized by Bernie Sanders. A lot of problems that a lot of organizations are experiencing right now all trace back to Hillary Clinton's decision to have some server stood up in her bathroom and run all of her classified information through it. It's amazing the tentacles that that one decision have grown. And it's her fault. And I'm not sorry about it. I was going to say sorry, but not sorry. So that's hour one. We'll be back with hour two right after this. 